Would you open God's precious holy word to John 18? We've come now to verse 12. We'll see four things here that we will extract from these slides from this passage today. But in the back of my mind is how Jesus is paying for my sin. I'm one of his and he's gone to pay for my sin, all of them. Peter, we've seen in this general passage in the context how Christ chose them. They're his. And then he prayed and told the father, you gave them to me. They're mine. And you gave these, them, to me. In this passage, we are going to see that Peter is the worst kind of person within the realm of believing in Christ, at this moment, in this situation, in these events, he shows himself to be the worst of Christ's disciples. Even so, John includes this within the context that we've been in to show to us that Peter was one of Christ's. And even though Peter is failing here, Christ is still headed to the cross for Peter, for all who are his. Now, what we'll see develop here is exactly what has been in this world since Cain and Abel. And it evolved at the Tower of Babel and, and continued, continues to this day and will continue until the close of the tribulation when Babylon is fallen and the mystery of the alliance between world religion and world government will at last come to an end. But what we have seen and will see and see here is that this unholy alliance between the, what, what John in the Revelation calls the whore of Babylon, false religion, and the one riding on her back, which is essentially human government, are hand in hand and have been in the destruction of the people of God the word of God, the way of God, and belief in one God. 
it continues and it even reaches to the place where God himself in human form is appearing. So we have this alliance between worldly power, Gentile power, Rome, and unholy man-made religion, Judaism. Together they have come in this alliance for the destruction of Jesus. It's always been that way. It will continue to be that way. Don't think that you'll escape this. Even today, religion and the world system are allied with each other against God and his Christ. We're warned, we're told in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against God and his Christ? And they do. They will continue to do so until at last Christ comes again. Because of the one who is in control of this world, the God of this world, the God of this age, the, the dra- Satan, because they are under his control, they're blinded to it. They don't, they don't even want to acknowledge anything spiritual or anti-spiritual. But because they're under his control, they must seek to destroy anything and everything regarding Christ. And here, they find an opportunity in which they think they will finally destroy him personally as it leads to the cross. So we keep all of these heavy thoughts in mind. Number one, even here and the suffering of Christ begins, we'll see. Even here, the religion of the world personified in these high priests, the Gentile power of the world concentrated at this point in time in Rome, all come together for the specific purpose of the development and preservation of their power and their wealth. We'll talk about that as we go along. And what stands in the way of absolute power on the earth? Well, the king of kings does. This is what troubled Caesar so much in the time of the Roman Caesars. The Christians were not revolutionaries But they could not proclaim that Caesar was their king and their God. Of course, Caesar was also seen as a God, the God of government. Now, with all of this in mind, and remember, we have just finished those first 11 verses. And the account here continues, beginning in verse 12. Then the cohort... And the commander, now that word commander is Kiliakus. That means the commander of a thousand. A centurion was a 
commander of a hundred, ten centuries of men were under the command of Achilliarch, this commander. So the cohort was that division of Roman soldiers that numbered at least 600. Their commander now is, is revealed. There's a commander there who is commanding the cohort. The officers of the Jews were the ones appointed by Pharisees and scribes and, and temple priests who were, the, who were the temple police and they carried clubs. The Romans carried swords and spears. And those swords and spears were in that day the best designed weapons for the battlefield. Uh, so they're well armed and we saw that last time. So there are, I don't know how many hundreds of people ready for trouble. Battle-hardened, mean, hostile Roman soldiers and thuggish uh, temple police. I read an account, and I've shared some of this before, but just to put it all in its perspective, the, the Roman power at this point in time in Jerusalem had been extended into the priesthood, into the high priesthood of the Jewish temple. So the high priest, the office of high priest was always in rotation at the bequest, even at the command of Rome. There was this fragile and strange alliance between the high priesthood because it would seem that they held sway in a special way over the Jewish people. And Rome, who was the political power in control in that area in that day, together they wielded power, unquestionable power over the people. And in this case, where they were over the Jews. The Jews didn't like it. And this, this uh, priestly family of Annas, he had five sons and one grandson who all served as high priest at one time or another. They just rotated it within the family. And they were right in the, they were in the embrace of Rome they permitted uh, Roman taxation to go across smoothly. They also implemented a temple tax. Uh, and then they had these exchange rates where you had to use temple currency uh, to buy anything in the temple. And they had a scam running so that like on Passover, for example, the poor worshiping family would bring the best of their flock as a Passover lamb, it was the best one they had. And invariably and inevitably, everybody's lamb failed. And so they had to buy a, <laughs> a, uh, a pre-examined, already passed the test Passover lamb 
from among those in the temple. And guess, of course, who, who ran that business? It was the temple priesthood, the temple priest, high priest, and his family. A lot of money, all kinds of money. And then to make people exchange their other currency for temple currency and, and then these exorbitant exchange rates that they charge, all that. And this was shared with Roman officials. Now, you, you, you probably won't believe this in the day in which we live, but politics is dirty. <laughs> they find a way to get you money and then they find more and more ways to get it and then they find ways to entrench themselves in positions of power so that you really can't do anything about it. And they, they won't give it up. They'll kill the Son of God if they have to before they'll give it up. So this is where we are. It's really no different than it has been uh, in, in throughout the, the ages of, of man in history, especially in what the Bible calls the times of the nations or the times of the Gentiles, the very close of which we may be entering even now, I hope so. So they didn't want to give up this power and this wealth. And Rome had guaranteed that the family of Anas would be the ones always rotating as high priest. And that kept the people under subjection. Kept the money. I mean, tremendous amounts of money flowing into the temple and through the pockets of the high priests into the pockets of Roman officials. So with all that, here's the Kiliarch. And of course, those guys, they're the ones with the swords, right? I don't know if, I don't, I mean, think about this. I don't know if the Talmud <laughs> had a second amendment or not. I don't know. Nobody else could own swords and spears like theirs, right? Okay, so here they come. The temple police, I read an account where Jewish families on the day of Passover would get into an argument with people over the exchange of currency and especially over the requirement to purchase a pre-qualified lamb for Passover. They would get into an, an argument of these people to come from miles and miles away. And they're already in kind of a bad mood because, you know, it was a hard journey, but then they get into a fuss and an argument and the temple police would come and whacked him in the head with a club. They had that kind of authority, that kind of power. The apostle Paul later on, Saul of Tarsus, was given powers of arrest and he was given command really over some of the temple police and he could go after Jews just about anywhere if he heard they had become Christians. Now, the people know that the foot of Rome and the temple is on their neck. They can hardly do anything about it. There were laws, I've read them, there were laws that apply from, from Judaism that applied 
to this particular account. And there were also Roman laws that would have applied since Rome was officially in charge. And everything that happens here was illegal. It was illegal in Jewish courts and it was illegal in Roman courts. But let me tell you something. When power becomes absolute power, laws don't make any difference. Constitutions don't make any difference. If law is set aside and can be set aside, so this is exactly what's happening. This is, first of all, the account of the the arrest of Jesus. They took hold of Jesus and bound him. It's interesting. In uh, Matthew 26, Judas said to them, Make sure you bind him good. I don't know if he thinks that Jesus needed his hands to do miracles or not. But we already saw that he didn't need that. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of what the crowd might do. That's why they came at night, which was illegal. They brought him to court at night, which was illegal. And they were trying to force him to testify against himself, which was illegal. They bound him at night. It was illegal in Jewish courts to have a night court and to have a court in secret. It had to be a public matter. All of that didn't matter because they're in charge. And they can do it the way that they want to do it. Who's going to say anything? Who wants to get a club upside the head or even worse, a spear through the gut? Because Jesus was seen as a treasonous enemy trying to overthrow Rome. They could have killed him on the spot. Well, okay. They led him away to Anas first. Now, this guy wasn't even the high priest. I guess his house, his apartment was the closest. I mentioned how Anas, he's the the daddy and granddaddy of the rest of them, the other guys who served as high priest during this general time. So I guess they thought to bring him because he really was the head of the bunch anyway. But he wasn't even the official high priest. So this is illegal. They bring him down to us. For he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest the same year. Now this is a sort of a, in my opinion, this is sort of a, a dig at the events. Oh, by the way, it was that year he was high priest. See, he wasn't supposed to operate that way. But whenever the Romans wanted the next guy to rotate as high priest, that's what happened. But that year it was Caiaphas. Now we go back to John 11 and remember, Caiaphas was the one having given counsel to the Jews that it is profitable for one man to perish for the people. We have to keep that in mind because the high priest himself had already proclaimed the importance of the doctrine of atonement and how that one man could be given for the people. And if you go back and read John 11, it says, and he didn't even come up with that himself. It was was a divine thing that came into his mind and he just spat it out. So this is really in fulfillment 
of a prophecy that Caiaphas made and he didn't even realize he was prophesying and he certainly didn't realize that it was of God because he was a godless man. It's interesting to me. God can speak through anything. You remember Balaam had a donkey. I used to enjoy, I could get away with things reading the King James Bible that I could have never gotten away with. My daddy would have whipped me. Because the King James says that Balaam, his donkey turned around. The donkey saw the angel was going to kill him and Balaam didn't see it. And so Balaam gets off and starts beating his donkey. The King James reads like this. He got off of his ass and whipped his ass. (laughs) And his ass said, why are you whipping me? Now, daddy would let me read that in Sunday school. But I couldn't have gone outside in the churchyard and said that for nothing in the world. Well, (laughs) Caiaphas just happened to have been another jackass along the way who spoke from God. Stay with me for this and other important Bible studies, right? (laughs) It's profitable for one man to perish for the people. I think of through history, the Bible records much of it, but I have to see all of it in history. Of course, as the hand of God, we're told that God sets up kings and kingdoms. He controls the heart of the king. And practically all of these kings were unsaved, lost, unregenerate men, but they were performing unwittingly the will of God. And as it turns out in the course of time, by grace for his purpose with regard to his people. Cyrus made his edict with regard to the return of the Jews. And there was Nebuchadnezzar. I could just go on and on with how God has spoken through the actions and words of despots across history for the sake of his elect. Here's Caiaphas. I am not the judge of souls, but I'm going to say that it's probably better than 10 to 1 that Caiaphas is in hell. Even so, what he said is recorded as a prophecy because it points to the one man in in the Jewish world who died for the people. Okay, so son-in-law Caiaphas was the high priest. All this is illegal. Now we have the 
And John inserts this. He doesn't spend that much time on the trial. He focuses here as much on the failure of Peter. I think it was in John 13, the braggadocious Peter said, I'll die for you. I'm ready to do whatever it takes for you. Okay, here we go. Now, Simon Peter and the other disciple, not to belabor the point, but that other disciple is identified in other scriptures, of course, as John himself. We're following Jesus. Now, since that disciple, that is the other disciple, was known to the high priest, all right, his mother was Salome. Salome uh, was related to Mary, who was related uh, to Elizabeth, who was the wife of Zechariah, who was a, a priest. He was the daddy of John the Baptist. So John here is a relative, and he's known to these people, and he's been in and out of this particular area, so they know him. Peter is cowering at a distance, as we're, we learned that in what does it, Mark 14 or so. He's, he's far off. He's following far off, but not John. John just goes right in and completely and fully and unashamedly identifies that he's with Jesus. He also entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now in the courtyard, there were some swanky apartments around the courtyard, and that's where those high priests lived. Anas, Caiaphas, and the others. He entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Peter stood at the door outside. Therefore, the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Peter <laughs> said, uh, uh, no, I'm okay. Yeah. That's the gospel according to Charles. He had to go and get, come on, you can come in. You can come in with me. Therefore, the servant girl, the doorkeeper said to Peter, Aren't you one of the disciples of this man? He said, I'm not first denial. He said, I'm not. Now the servants and the officers were standing having made a coal of fire, a fire of coals, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. Now Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. This is out in the courtyard. You come into the entranceway of the courtyard. And so it's cold at this point in time. And he's there with them trying to get warm. So you have the first denial, and that brings us to the next point, which is the absolute righteousness of Christ. Then the high priest questioned Jesus concerning his disciples and concerning his teaching, Jesus answered. So this high priest, he's not the high priest, but he carries the title sort of like uh, an ex-governor or an ex-president, whatever, carries the title. So he's, he's, he's spoken honorably as one who had been a high priest. High priest questioned Jesus concerning it. Two, two things he's worried about, he's concerned about. Number one, who's with you in all of this? And then number two, I want to ask you some things about your specific teaching. What about your teaching? Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. My message was open and public. 
I never was in secret. I never secretly gathered anyone with regard to my public teaching. My public teaching never, ever was crossways of the law or the prophets or the writings, not in any way. I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those having heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. Now, Jesus here appeals to what he knows is their law uh, with regard to this. And that law is, number one, they're not supposed to be meeting in secret like this to have a trial. Number two, there are supposed to be witnesses brought against him if they have something against him. But he is not supposed to be forced to testify against himself. That's against their law. So he says, I've spoken openly. I'm going to say, here, here's the deal. I haven't been secret. Bring in all the witnesses that you want to. Bring them in. Probably most of them were acquainted with somebody who had been healed by the loving power of Christ. Bring all the witnesses that you want to bring in. I've done nothing in secret. And let them tell you what I have taught. Let them tell you what I have said. You will find that I have not violated the law or the Old Testament. I haven't violated the scriptures in any way. And I was always open about it and never forbade anyone from coming to join in. It was never in secret. So Jesus makes the objection for himself thus to let us know in scriptures that this whole thing is, is illegal anyway. So when, you know, when, when, Christ, when, when Christ is suffering, he is, he, he is suffering unrighteousness and, and, unjust, and injustice in this whole matter. Question those having heard what I spoke to them. Behold, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by gave a blow with the palm to Jesus, saying, thus you answer the high priest? These guys could do anything they wanted to do. Now suppose today you were dragged into a court for, for a charge that hasn't been made asked questions that you don't have to answer, intimidated and threatened by the powers that be, brought into a court that is an illegal court, it's in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of, of the night, and there is nothing legal about it all, but they are the ones who are the officials. Even though everything they are doing is illegal, they are bringing you and you appeal to what is right. And one of their officers takes out his billy club and whacks you upside the head or strikes you with the palm of his fist. This is the first blow that is struck against Jesus. Thus, you answer the high priest. That's, that's ironic. Jesus 
is the high priest. Jesus answered him, if I said something wrong, tell me by the law what I have said that was wrong. Tell me. They wouldn't because he hadn't done anything wrong. However, if I spoke rightly, why do you strike me? Well, obviously they couldn't say anything, so Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we have the arrest of Jesus, and then we have this, this uh, denial of, of Peter and the injustice and illegality of the whole proceeding, both, both religious and civil or civic. So the guy who isn't the high priest anyway, at that point in time, the official high priest, sends him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest. Now there's a courtyard, and I told you their apartments were just around there, so it was just a, it was just a walk across the courtyard from where Anas was to the apartment of Caiaphas. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, therefore they said to him, are you not also of his disciples? Second denial. He denied and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest being a kinsman of Malchus. Remember that guy? Peter cut his ear off. Being a kinsman of him whose ear Peter had cut off said, didn't I see you in the garden with him? Third denial. Then again, Peter denied and immediately a rooster crowed. Christ had told him, you will recall, you will have denied me three times before the rooster crows. Third denial, the rooster crows. Luke gives us a very touching addition to this account in Luke 22. The Bible says in Luke 22, and Jesus looked at him, Peter the one who had vowed just earlier in the evening that he would never, ever leave the side of Jesus. That he was willing to die for Jesus. Apparently not. As soon as Jesus heard the rooster crow, and he knew all things, he knew this was the third denial. Being escorted across the courtyard to the apartment of Caiaphas, he saw Peter, omniscience, divine knowledge, knew right where he was, and looked at him as he passed by. So what then do we say to all of this? We're told in uh, another gospel Maybe Mark's God. Anyway, we're told that when, when Peter denied the third time, he did it with cursing and swearing. And then Jesus looked at him. The first thing that I see is the power of grace and the complete and absolute salvation of my Savior. with Peter, who was making all of these bold claims, 
becomes a coward and falls apart. Apparently has no loyalty. But the difference between Peter and anybody else who would have denied is this. Peter belonged to Jesus. In Luke, I think it's in 24, but in Luke, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked for permission to sift you like wheat. And he has been granted that permission. But when all of that's over and you've come back to who you really are, strengthen the brethren. There's a brighter day ahead for Peter. Christ knew this because he belongs to Christ. And the power of Christ that works in his life cannot be defeated by the world finally. And according to tradition, the rest of his life, Peter becomes a great disciple for Christ in his preaching, especially in Rome. So the first thing that I notice is that I thank God that my hand is in his hand and his hand will never let go. I was, I was shopping. My daddy used to be off on Wednesdays. This is back before I was in school. I was a little kid, but I remember mother would go shopping in downtown Gadsden. And uh, I was marveling at all the people and looking in the store windows and I was holding mother's hand and somehow, I don't know how, I think I must have jerked loose and went over and looked in a window of something that I really liked and came back and took hold of the first hand that I found in the crowd. It wasn't mother's hand. And mother was about to go into this shop and she came over and she said, Charles, what are you doing? And I looked up at this woman and she was looking at me and mother was looking at both of us. And mother snatched my hand. She said, I'm not going to turn loose you again. I don't care how much you wiggle. And she didn't. This is the way of my Lord. I wiggle a lot. You do too. But he never turns me loose. Never. Because I'm his. The second thing that I take note of is that the alliance of religion and world power government, administration, whatever you want to call it, is real. It's inescapable. And the people of God need to be prepared in their hearts for whatever may happen in this world and know that the Spirit of Christ is with us. That nothing is going to befall us that God can't deliver us from, nothing. And finally, I have to recognize that among the two, the tale of two disciples here, there was one who was a coward and one who bravely identified with Christ. And against those two, I must constantly examine myself. 
especially in light of this passage, and beg God that I may be found to be the one who openly followed him. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he came into this world to save sinners. If God is calling you to Christ, if God is calling you into his salvation today, as you exit this room, we have deacons and their wives. Just as you exit, you'll see them standing in the doorways of the rooms right across the hall. As you exit, they're ready to pray with you about the salvation that God extends to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you're here and the spirit of God is leading you to come and be a part of Shiloh, to be a member here, they are prepared as well to speak to you about that and pray with you about it. Right now, let's stand up prayerfully and we'll be dismissed.